Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom, and I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to be talking about it mostly in relationship to Amos. Spent a lot of time working on upcoming shows that we're going to have. Uh, most of Amos is outlined at preparingyou.com. And we've done Amos 1 and 2, and in Amos 1 we saw it was kind of an introduction of Amos, who was supposedly a shepherd and tender of fig trees, or, or possibly that's just a symbolic shepherd because Christ was called a shepherd, but maybe he was a real shepherd, like I'm a real shepherd, and actually attended flocks. But somehow or other, he was called to be this prophet, and he was kind of a poetic prophet, and wrote uh, using some interesting words and phraseology and often adding many letters to given words that he used in the text, and we've shown you just a fraction of that in our study of Amos. If you really want to study it, it's available, and there are ways in which to do that, but we didn't want to get too complicated. We want you just to understand that many of these prophets were saying the same thing because many of the people throughout history have been doing the same thing and getting into the same kind of trouble. And in truth, we're, we've been doing the same thing and we're getting in the same kind of trouble because of the fact that the nature of God is incorporated into creation so that if you go a way that is contrary to the way of God, there will be consequences built in to the system. You know, like the Ten Commandments, we were just discussing this with somebody yesterday, that the Ten Commandments are are not just rules that God wants to impose upon you. They are rules that are built into nature, into the nature of mankind, into the nature of creation, so that if you violate those rules, you will go off the path that leads to eternal life. Whether it's eternal life of your generations upon generations, or your even your spiritual eternal life. It will degenerate and degrade your society. You know, we've looked at studies that show that every time in history, when a up-and-coming civilization or society, you know, that is progressing beyond the Stone Age. When you came to Africa, they they were barely out of the Stone Age. There was very little smelting of any kind of metal. Certainly, Iron Age, Bronze Age had not yet occurred there. There was not massive areas of trade. If you came to America, it was very similar. There were some civilizations that had progressed, Aztecs and Incas, of course the Incas were pretty much gone, but the Aztecs were still around. But the Aztecs were reaching a pinnacle of self-destruction at the at the point in, in the arrival of the Spanish. And uh, the people that were around about the Aztecs 
wanted to join with the Spanish and destroy the Aztecs because the Aztecs were, you know, they were into human sacrifice and they were into to, heavily into slavery and, and abuse of the people round about them. And they probably weren't always that way. They didn't build up their society that way, but their society was degenerating. What were some of the things that pre were preludes to the degeneration of these societies that were developing a more complex and technical society? Aztecs had an extremely advanced system of medicine and surgery, but they were lacking the wheel and other things like that. And that's what you often find is that because of circumstances, a society or a culture will advance in some areas but not in other areas. And sometimes those, if the areas are not technological, maybe they're only horticultural, that will not leave as much evidence behind or readily observable evidence behind. You'll see evidence. If a society was progressing maybe in trade, and there were some roads that were being built by the Aztecs across very difficult areas to build roads, and uh, very straight uh, roads that went for miles and miles and miles. They built cities, they built uh, monuments, and uh, this was because they had progressed as a society and as a culture. But something happens... And it's often usually following a certain pattern where a culture or a society begins to degenerate as a society. And you can see that degeneration of society if you know the circumstances within that culture that are taking place before that degeneration begins to occur and one of the things that has been observed is that when there is a sexual revolution in a society no matter how advanced it has become no matter how stable it appears usually within two generations the society begins to collapse and sometimes that collapse is rather rapid there was in Rome there was in Greece there were in numerous other societies that when they had this sexual revolution, the society began to collapse. And there are reasons to believe that that's also the case with the Aztecs. Now, when the Spanish arrived, they were able to take advantage of that degeneration of that society and also advantage of the numbers of roundabout societies, the native populations that wanted to see the destruction of the Aztec society because of the corruption that had entered into it and the abuses that followed. So, why would a society collapse after a sexual revolution? What You know, I'm, I'm calling it a sexual revolution, but really what it is is a breakdown of the family. When the family breaks down, society breaks down because in almost every case, when you see, when you see a society progressing out of the Stone Age, out of a primitive, um, you know, subsistence type living where the people come together in a more tribal manner. Somebody was actually saying, using the word tribal, uh, 
was racist because unless you're an American indigenous Indian, you can't use the word tribal, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Israel was tribal. The Gauls were tribal. Even the Romans, before they became a civil society, were tribal. And then they formed leagues because of this tribalism. Tribalism comes about when large groups of clans, which are extended families, begin to unite together and form what we call a tribe. And you see it in cultures all over the history of mankind and all over the world. But that tribalism is, you know, the successful tribalism is often extremely dependent upon the cornerstone of society, which is the family. That's where people are produced. Now, you'll have some societies in which there isn't a true nuclear family and it will get by for a while but that's usually like an isolated society such as uh, people in Iceland they're a very isolated society and uh, at least now I can't really speak of you know hundreds of years ago but when young women have children out of wedlock and they're not married the parents or grandparents are the ones who take care of the their daughter and the the child that their daughter is producing and she may or may not get married to the father of the child they get away with that because they were an isolated society when you start having a society that is not so isolated that you will not get away with that as easily because it is absolutely essential that the families, that nuclear family, be strong in order to maintain the camaraderie between families that is necessary to muster that militia or army to protect against foreign invasion, which often comes as other societies either degenerate or become rather barbaric and just simply marauding. They get together in unique groups that are able to go around and maraud nearby communities and societies. When the Amalekites and Malachites tried to do that to Israel, Israel, you know, Israel that had just come out of Egypt and was learning to be a united tribal society, uh, based on the rules laid down by Moses, they were able to fend off these barbaric or these militant small tribal groups because you, if you attacked an Israelite, you know, and he's, you know, they're spread out across the desert, and you attack this group over here, it was as if you attacked the entire group because the Israelites were bound together by their system of sacrifice. And as we've said before, their system of sacrifice was not a superstitious, piling up dead stones, killing sheep and setting them on fire so that the smoke would go up in the air and please God. Anybody who imagines that that's what the sacrifice of Israel looked like has not understood the material in the Torah and the Old Testament. 
what the uh, system of altars was, was a system of social welfare that bound the people together because sometimes families break down and they, they you end up with needy people in your society that need help. And so they created a system to help families over rough spots by other families coming to their aid in small groups called the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They also employed that same network of charity that was organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands to create an appeals court, which we call the cities of refuge, so that justice could be done when justice was in short supply. So when the bread was in short supply, when there was uh, food shortages and famine, the society was able to come to the aid of other people within that society in a broad range of ways because they were organizing this charitable system of sacrifice by the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They had created living altars of men of charity that would help bring that aid and distribute that aid in a moral and practical way. And then they used that same network not only to form those appeals courts so that in case there was injustice done, where there is a famine of justice, in other words, a shortage of justice, they also used that same network to muster that militia that would be necessary in the case of foreign invasion. You have to realize, think about it, How did these societies function? How did they bind themselves together without removing the liberty of choice? Well, they had to bind themselves together in systems of faith, hope, and charity rather than the way that other societies did through force, fear, and fealty. Force, fear, and fealty work for a while, but eventually you have to degrade the family in such systems because the family is the biggest threat to totalitarianism. Not only family, though. Families that come together in networks of like tens, hundreds, and thousands where you not only care about your family, but you care about your neighbor's family as much as you care about your own. So that's a that's a brief breakdown of some of the essential natures of all societies. You know, like we've said before, Egypt had a system of laws, the Marat. It was like 64, 69 different laws, but they if you if you bundled them up, you know, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goat or steal thy neighbor's goat or thy neighbor's ass or whatever and you took all these and you put them all in all the ones to deal with stealing into thou shalt not steal suddenly you have much less than 60 laws you do the same thing with coveting you do the same thing with injuring people thou shalt not murder means thou shalt not stab your neighbor even if you stab him in a way that he is, does not die. You can't stab him. 
You can't beat on him till he's almost dead. But he didn't die, so I get away with that. No, you weren't supposed to injure your neighbor at all. And so, because, I mean, those bruises that develop on him, that's because you killed part of him. <laughs> You've killed some of his blood cells and his tissue cells, and now these bruises show up. So, yeah, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not adulterate your society, you shall not adulterate the relationship of your family, you won't give away your right to choose uh, to somebody else in order to get benefits, and you certainly won't do it because you covet your neighbor's goods. All these things are incorporated in the Ten Commandments, and if you do not apply them in the way in which they were intended your society will begin to degenerate. It will begin to become weak and it will become subject to those who want to become tyrants of your society. And you'll find yourself creating offices of power. Men who seek power will seek those offices. And then when they become totalitarian, you will not have the strength in a society to stop them. And so your society will continue to degenerate under the burdens put upon it by these men who want to exercise the authority one over the other. Christ called out ministers who did not want to exercise authority one over the other. A few of them did. Peter seemed to have a little problem with women. He thought women should be in their place and not have any personal choices, you know, kind of, kind of chauvinistic, uh, and yet before he came out on Pentecost, uh, that showed up a couple of times in the Gospels, but by the time he came out at Pentecost, he was holding the women of the community in high esteem and realized that both men and women may be vessels of the Holy Spirit. And women like Mary and Mary Magdalene kind of straightened him out on that. But ultimately, really, it's the Holy Spirit writing upon his heart and on his mind. And he had to go through some rough spots to get to that point. And you may need to realize you may have some rough spots to go to. But the good news is, it appears the rough spots are coming. Because we've gone down the road a long way for a long time. And it's going to be a rough trip to get back to where we should have been all along, which is on the road to the kingdom of God. It's a narrow road. It's not a broad road as we find the road to destruction. So, anyway, we need to be able to see those road signs. And, of course, that's what the Ten Commandments were. They actually are not so much laws. If they were laws, you'd have penalties listed behind every one of them. What they are is guideposts. If you're violating any of those Ten Commandments, if you're doing it on a societal level, that society is going to be doomed. And uh, you need to repent of that. And those of you who are willing to repent of those social sins need to come together Because those who will not repent 
are are headed for condemnation. And so that's what Amos is talking to the people about. And that's what he keeps telling them. And that's what all the prophets are warning the people to do. And one of the things that he was saying, which we see in uh, Amos 2, is that these transgressions and the consequences that are coming, one of the things is that certain elements of a healthy society will uh, degenerate and not be available, such as, you know, the watchman of society, which if you were organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, those watchmen of society would be creating a kind of an internet, an internal social internet, sharing the information about where we are headed and then those people would share them with everybody and everybody could apply the remedies in society to prevent the destruction of society that is inevitable if you go down certain paths. And part of that destruction is the fact that you soon can't see evil coming. You're, you're unaware. You know, you're drunk on the wages of unrighteousness and you are unable to see the decaying of society, the weakening of society. And uh, and people become easily frightened and panicked. They fear death all the time. You know, and of course, that's exactly what is happening in the world today, which is why this crazy pandemic of a flu virus has frightened everybody so that they're wearing masks and hiding in their homes. And now some people are just fed up and they're coming out and they're taking off their mask and they're saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. But are they going to do what Christ commanded? Because their anger at being oppressed by their oppressors will not save them. Their anger and resentment of the abuses that have come down to their society will not save them. Repentance is thinking a different way and it only helps if the way you're going to be thinking is the way of Christ. There is no other solution. You have to think like Christ thought. And Christ was willing to sacrifice himself so that his fellow man even the whole world might be saved. People think, well, Christ sacrificed, now I'm saved. Well, no, he, he his sacrifice was so that you might be saved. If you're not going to repent, if you're not going to conform to Christ, you're not going to receive his Holy Spirit, you're not going to receive the Comforter, and you still will not know what way to go and what to do as society continues to degenerate, you will actually be swept away either by your fear or by your anger. And so anyway, we're going to get into Amos 3 and we're going to try to see the solution when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So before there was good news, there was fake news. There was false churches, false religion. There was the church in the wilderness that was the called out. The word church means ecclesia, and ecclesia means the called out. I mean, literally, ek 
ekklesia in the Greek means called out. It doesn't mean assembly. It doesn't mean congregation. It means the called out. Now, the called out may assemble, but it means the called out. And so, therefore, you see this reference in the New Testament to the church in the wilderness. They're actually referring to the called out in the wilderness. So, who were the called out in the wilderness? Well, we know it was in the wilderness that somebody was called out. So, it's not Israel coming out of Egypt. That was not the church in the wilderness. Israel coming out of Egypt was the kingdom of God, maybe, but it was not the called out. The called out was specifically those who were called out of the camp of the golden calf. And the camp of the golden calf was a one-purse system. All your gold was in one place. You you gave your gold, you took off your gold rings and gold nuggets and whatever you had that was gold, and you deposited in this statue, which was like a Federal Reserve or something. It was the reserve gold. The gold was the most portable form of wealth that an individual could have or an individual family could possess. And so they put it all into this one place, which is what the Proverbs calls one purse. And then they they probably issued something to use. You know, if one guy had a lot of gold he put in, he that's his money. So he's going to get something he can use as money, as his own wealth. But it's only valuable in that society. You know, the, we, we, those of you who understand how these systems and societies and governments operate probably have looked at, you know, some of the Greek city-states. And, of course, the Spartans, it was illegal to own gold. They made their money out of lead. They knew that lead wasn't as valuable as gold, but you weren't allowed to own gold. So the gold belonged to the government and you got to own lead coins. Those lead coins had value in Sparta because they were backed by gold held by the government. But it had very little value if you fled Sparta and you say like went to Athens and tried to spend your Lead coins in Athens, people say, that's just lead. That's that's not very valuable. But that was a way to keep the people subject. You have to remember that most of Sparta was a slave society. They, They weren't slaves to particular Spartans. They were just slaves within the Spartan society. They worked. They earned money. It was just lead money. Uh, but they and they could exchange it amongst themselves, but they could not go somewhere else or trade somewhere else. Their wealth depended upon the su- success of Sparta. If somebody came in and invaded Sparta and stole all the gold of Sparta, because it's probably all in one place, then everybody is bankrupt. And of course, this is what Israel was doing by creating the golden calf 
as they were putting all their gold in one place. And this made the people want to stay and defend the Israelites because there's their wealth. It's in that golden statue. And it's a way in which the society can bind the whole of society together is that they take that gold and put it in one place. They put the government in charge of it. And then they aren't allowed to use gold amongst themselves. Of course, they did that in America back in 1933. When, you know, with HJR 192, they took away the gold of private citizens and it was supposed to go in the treasury. Now, they were already doing that because they were issuing since way back in 1913 and 1916 and those early days of that century, they were already getting people to not carry gold and silver in their purse like Moses required, but to use these things they call Federal Reserve Notes. And even before the Federal Reserve Notes, a lot of people were doing that with bank notes. And so the trans transition from banknotes to Federal Reserve banknotes was easier because we were already doing that. Notes are not just weights and measures. They have a place in society, but to use them as currency all the time, it, I always found it amazing reading old books and stories, just novels. I mean, you could read uh, uh, quite a few novels. And, and in one particular one, they were talking about the fact that that uh, they would not take notes from a bank in their store. And they pointed to a sign in their store that said, Cash Only. And, you know, that's right there in the book. Well, wait a minute. Paper notes are not cash? Well, at one time in history, no one would refer to a bank note as cash they would refer to that as a note. But over the time, men have begun to call banknotes cash. And now, we're actually moving into a society where you don't even carry the banknote. You just own an imaginary digital value somewhere on a computer, <laughs> which could just disappear overnight. I was actually stayed up all night writing and uh, somewhere around three o'clock in the morning the power blinked and it got real dark in here and everything shut down actually i could still see because i was using a laptop but everything else got dark because the power went out and of course there was no more internet so i couldn't check anything on the internet we were now exclusively uh, the only light we produced was by the battery in our laptop. <laughs> so that that suddenness of changing the situation can happen really quick. So the reason I mention some of these things is these are all a part of the decay of society. The key decay of society is the breakdown of the family, and that's what is so fascinating. Anybody who understood real history and had been studying real history would know this. They haven't been teaching real history in schools for 40 years or 50 years or 60 years. They've been removing the true history of mankind on a steady basis. They didn't do it all at one time. 
bits and pieces have been removed so that most people who are graduating from high school this year, graduated from high school 10 years ago, graduated from high school 20 years ago or even from college 20 years ago, don't know history. And, of course, now they're rewriting history, you know. And uh, I was Yami Parks was talking about the fact that she went to Columbia University had to get an education. She paid a lot of money to get this classical education. And she was shocked at how they were turning things like Jane Austen into a racist book that promoted, brainwashed you into accepting colonialism. And colonialism was racist and bad and evil. If you didn't have colonialism in Africa... Which often there were there were atrocities that occurred under colonialism. Anytime you have this centralization of power and a weakness of the people or one aspect of the people, you will have abuses. That's part of the human nature of things, which is what we're talking about, what Amos was talking about. But the reality is if the colonialists had not come into Africa and there were a variety of colonialists, the Boers uh, came into Africa and they did not enslave the population. They did not start a slave trade and start gathering up the natives and selling them off on slave boats. That was done by Muslims for the most part. Arabs who were Muslims at the time. And it wasn't done in South Africa almost at any time. Although there was slaves in South Africa, they were all created by the Zulus who also immigrated to South Africa. The Zulus either killed or enslaved every tribe they came into contact with. And because they were a big slave nation. Africa was full of slavery before the white men ever came. Before the Arabs even came through Africa. They were enslaving one another, killing one another. There were good people in Africa, but there were a lot of bad people in Africa. There were good people in North America and in South America, but there were a lot of bad people in certain areas of both North and South America. And there were some tribes that were pretty moralistic and and decent tribes, but they even had people amongst them that were bad people. It's the way nature is. That you can have good people in one family and bad people in the same family. (laughs) Good and bad is what it is. Which is why it's so important that you judge individuals according to the content of their character. And not what family they belong to. What clan they belong to. What uh, what, uh, tribe they belong to. What race they belong to. But you judge each man according to his character. That is a fundamental thing that you have to have in a society in order to have justice. If you undermine that concept, you will not have justice. And of course, Christ considered justice part of the weightier matters of his gospel. He condemned the Pharisees because they were not attending to the weightier matters. The Pharisees were a bit racist. That They were certainly condemning the Samaritans because they were Samaritans. Not because they were good or bad as an individual, but because they were Samaritans. And so Christ, you know, 
said a whole parable about the Good Samaritan. That irked the Pharisees because they had a class system and the the uh, Samaritans were not a member of that class. Wherever you have a society with a class system where you're better than somebody else because you're in this upper class, you know you are looking at a society on its way to decadence and decay because you're not judging men according to the content of their character. You're judging them by some sort of outside uh, uh, circumstance which has nothing to do with good or evil. You're just, you're being racist, tribalist in the sense that uh, you're 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 de- degrading a group of people based on things they have no control over whatsoever that usually have nothing to do with the moral fabric of that individual. So the breakdown of the family, anybody promoting the breakdown of the family, anybody promoting any statutory programs that breaks down the family like FDR was going to be breaking down the family. LBJ were going to be breaking down the family with their New Deal and their uh, war on poverty. And, uh, of course, Black Lives Matter wants to break down the family because the nuclear family is a threat to the totalitarianism that they are trying to usher in because the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement are communist in nature. And that's that's well documented. It's just the reality. But they're not the only ca- communists. Cloward and Piven, they were communists. Uh, Obama had Cloward and Piven to dinner at the White House on a regular basis. Cloward and Piven were out to destroy America by running it farther and farther into debt, bankrupting its welfare system. But the key thing that we see with Amos and in the Bible is there should have never been a welfare system by the state. Because a welfare system by the state, capital state, is a welfare system that is based on exercising authority one over the other. And only a welfare system based on individual right to choose and charity, that liberty to choose, will promote a healthy society, will bring you out of the Stone Age into the Age of Enlightenment. If you're creating a society that forces the contributions of the people, you will be degenerating society. And of course, one of the first things that has to go is the family. What will happen if you don't recognize these principles and live accordingly and follow the ways of Christ, which is to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and create that charitable society and a network of charity like Abraham did, like Moses did, like Jesus Christ did, and commanded his disciples to make the people sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands and create those daily ministrations of charity. If you don't do that, you will weaken society so much that the young people will actually be poisoned. They will be cursed, cursed with debt, like we see already, 
because of their covetous practices, but they will actually be literally lined up and poisoned at to even poisoned to death because you don't have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, or the character to do anything about that destruction when it is coming upon you. And, you know, just before we began the show, we were hearing about, like, what is it, 46% of the people polled somewhere who said they were not going to take the shot uh, of this new vaccination or so-called vaccination for this flu virus uh, called COVID. And, what was it, 29% were not sure they would take the shot. And, of course, we have... Uh, Kate Brown in Oregon trying to force the counties to get 80% of the people in their county to get this injection or they won't receive money that is already allocated by the federal government to the counties but has to go to the counties through the state. So she's going to hold up that money. Uh, It's money for health uh, programs until... 80% of the counties are, 80% of the people in the counties are injected with this new serum. Uh, Dr. Thomas uh, Shambukuru, uh, who's the deputy director of the CDC Immunization Safety Office, uh, said during a Thursday meeting just this last week, I think it was uh, actually not this Thursday, but the Thursday before, that, uh, that there was a higher than expected number of cases of heart inflammation amongst young people. Back there several weeks ago, there was already 196 reports of myocarditis and pericarditis amongst young healthy people, young people between the ages of 18 and 24. And we're actually even seeing it amongst people that are younger because They're actually getting children to take this vaccination. And people are giving it out, even though it's an experimental injection. They're giving it to children now because people are so paranoid. And the people they look to to find out what the truth is, those men who should be the watchmen on the wall, are lying to them. Or they're just ignorant themselves. You see, CNN... Is your watchman on the wall? I'm, I'm working on a whole series about clergy people. There are people who don't like clergyism. And uh, what it is that they, they say there's no call for clergy by Christ. Well, actually there is. And we'll, you'll see that when we go through that study. But uh, they're just so against clergyism. And of course they're against it because they equate clergyism with the Catholic Church and their Protestants and so therefore anything that smells of Catholicism is supposedly evil so they're kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But the reality is they're going to the clergy of the state because a clergy is supposed to perform duties to society. They have duties to society. That's what religion was was the performance of duties to God and your fellow man. So a clergy is some group of people like the called out who are going to perform these duties in service to the people. Well, the only way that the clergy can 
redistribute to the needy of society is that society freely gives to those clergy. Well, there's another clergy called the clergy of the state. Most people don't use that term. The clergy of the world. They redistribute wealth on a regular basis. But they don't need charitable contributions because they also exercise authority one over the other. So all these people out there saying, oh, we don't need any clergy. We can just have home churches. They're actually going to men who exercise authority and asking them to force their neighbor to contribute so that they can have free education, social security, health care, uh, all these benefits, which the Bible is actually calling the wages of unrighteousness. So all those things are going on today in the world. Your, your watchmen on the wall are not telling you there's something wrong with that, but the watchmen of Christ are telling you. And so that's what Amos was. Amos was a real shepherd, supposedly, and he was called out to go and tell the people what they were missing. And so anyway, that's what we're doing now in this show. So we're in Amos, and we're in Amos 3, and we're going to be looking at Amos 3 to find out what he was saying. And he begins it with, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. So he's using this word families in relationship to this whole nation. And so, what is that? Well, if you go to Micah 3, 1, 5, we can see that we see similar things talked about there in Micah 3, uh, verses 1 through 5, where it says, And I said here, I pray you, O heads of Jacob. Well, all descendants of Jacob would be part of that one family. We would also call it a clan. And ye... Princes of the house of Israel. Well, Israel is this other name. They're supposedly all either bloodline related or adopted into Israel. Is it not for you to know judgment? Who hate the good and love the evil. Who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and as flesh within the cauldron. Well, where was this other cauldron that the prophets are talking about? That was in Egypt. And here we see Amos talking about bringing this family out of the land of Egypt. You know, let us build a city where we be the flesh and the city be the cauldron. Where we all have one purse. 
This is a theme we see throughout Proverbs, throughout the prophets, throughout all the stories of the Bible, that he took us out of Egypt. And if we if we decided to have a ruler, we were supposed to write down in the Constitution that regulated that ruler, limited the power of that ruler, that he could do nothing to return you to the bondage of Egypt. That's in Deuteronomy. He's supposed to be able to do nothing to return you to the bondage of Egypt. Because God took you out of that and did not want you to go back to that. So what was the bondage of Egypt? Well, your labor was not entirely yours anymore. Your labor now belonged to the government of Egypt or the government of Greece or the government of Rome or wherever, or the government of Judea. And that's the bondage of Egypt. Now, in Egypt, it was 20%, but in many countries, it's 30, 40, 50, 60% of your labor belongs to the government. And that is the bondage of Egypt. We'll be right back. So, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Yep, we're in this Amos 3, and we're down to verses 2, 3, 4, where they're talking about the families, the whole families, they say, and again, that word family appears about 300 times in, in the Bible. It's actually from a word that means like a maid or a girl, a young maid or a girl. And, but the same word, which is shin pi hey, the same word, uh, Hebrew word, root word, also means the stick. <laughs> so, so you you kind of wonder what 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 is it is it is it a maid or a stick? But that's that's one of those things that in the Hebrew language that often the same group of letters will mean both something that is somewhat abstract and something that is physical. And of course, you say, well, you know, a maid girl is something physical. But actually, to some degree, it's a little abstract because it's human being and all made girls are not the same. And so it's the idea of being this vessel. A girl is a vessel. She will, she has a womb. She will bring about the next generation. And so the, what the word you see there for family is that original word that could mean a girl, a maid, you know, who's, you know, still a, possibly a virgin, who has not had children, or it could mean this stick, or if you put a mim in front of it, mim shifa, uh, you, it becomes the word family. Because you're now talking about generations. A family is not just the family in the moment. It's its grandfathers and grandmothers and great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers. But also in the future, it is your sons-to-be and daughters-to-be and the next generation. And it's through this family, which is the cornerstone of society, that the next generation will come. It will flow into existence through the family. So the children of Israel against the whole family, the the nation, the clan of people, which I brought out of Egypt, is evidently now going back to Egypt. And you only have I known of all the families of the earth, which is all the all the different 
tribal generations of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So, there's some sort of iniquities going on here. And he says, can two walk together except that they be agreed? So, are you really walking with God? That's the whole point of Israel was to help man return to the garden where man walked with God. And so, God showed you the way back. And part of that seeing the way back was to give you this Ten Commandments. And, of course, we know that the Ten Commandments are are bound up into two basic commandments, which is to love God, which is a giver of life. That's certainly part of the character of God. It is a giver of justice, which is part of the character of God. It's a giver of truth, which is part of the character of God. So you have to love the truth. You have to love justice. And you have to love giving life. And you have to love giving the right to choose to others. That's what it means to love God. If you don't love those other things, you probably don't love God. So if you want to take away the choice of other people, you don't love God. If you want to exercise authority over people and force them to do what you want rather than give them choice, you don't really love God. And so... Understanding that, then what's the second of the greatest commandment is that you have to love your neighbor as yourself. Designing systems that force your neighbor to lose his right to choose and actually force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare is a violation of that second and greatest commandments. So you violating socialism violates both those commandments. And since those are are the root of all Ten Commandments. Socialism violates all Ten Commandments. (laughs) So it will lead to destruction. And you cannot be a socialist and a Christian because you're not going to be walking together. You're not in agreement. And you will not find the Garden of Paradise. You will find the pit. So in verse 4 we see, Will a lion roar in the forest? When he hath no prey, will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city And the people not be afraid. Shall there be evil in a city. And the Lord hath not done it. So these are questions that he's throwing out. He's moving from the lion roaring. A young lion roaring in the wilderness. Why would he roar unless he took a prey? Well, you know, if my phone were to ring right now, my cell phone were to ring, you would hear coyotes howling. <laughs> because that's what my ring is on my phone. But the reality is, is that when you hear those coyotes, certain howling that the coyotes do, it means they just got something. They just, they killed, they made a kill. And other coyotes hear that, and the coyotes that are friendly, that are part of that clan, will come to get a share of that kill. And so, that's what he's saying. And he's telling you that the warning is, is that you're, you're taking a prey. 
And I hear the noises that you're taking a prey. And he brings up this other analogy of a snare and a bird. Well, if you know Proverbs, they talk about, you know, if sinners entice thee and say, you know, let's all have one purse, says consent not. And he uses that analogy of the net being spread before the bird. And the net is a snare spread before the bird. And you are captured in the the net of your own making. So he's in this poem, he's bringing these other ideas from scriptures like Proverbs and scriptures like Deuteronomy and scripture, you know, Deuteronomy 17, where we're never to return to the bondage of Egypt because God took you out of Egypt and he doesn't want you going back. He's using these other uh, analogies in his poem to say that this is what you're doing. And there's going to be consequences for what you're doing. He's saying that if this trumpet is blown in the city, will the people not be afraid? So he's saying that what I'm telling you is cause for alarm and to be afraid so that you repent, think differently and go back. He starts verse 7 with, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret Unto the servants, the prophets. His servants, the prophets. So the prophets are those who are coming and telling you what's going on. And in verse 8, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken. Who can put, who can but prophesy? In verse 9, publish in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria. So what are the mountains of Samaria? We've talked about that before. There's a link on the page if you're at preparing you trying to follow along so you can look up what Samaria is. And behold the great tumults in the midst thereof and the oppressed in the midst thereof. So you've got these two words, tumults, worth looking up, and oppressed in the midst thereof. So has anybody been oppressed in your society of late? Is everybody allowed to make choices or are they forced to make the choices somebody else he makes the choice and they're forced to comply with those choices. I mean, you have certain things written in the Constitution of the United States, which, of course, I will say here again, is not a biblical document. It doesn't follow uh, hardly any of the five requirements for a biblical constitution. There's at least five elements that should be in there to be a biblical constitution. They are not in there. You can look up Deuteronomy 17.16. You can read uh, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions, uh, which we have free online in PDF format and also in many article formats. And you can see why the Constitution does not meet biblical standards for a biblical Constitution. So, are there oppressed in your midst? For they know not to do right saith the Lord, 
who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. When Jesus came and looked at the temple set up by Herod and the Pharisees, he said, you've made my house, the house of God, a den of thieves where they're robbing one another. And of course, a lot of people say taxation is theft. Well, taxation is not necessarily theft. Taxation may be taking from one class of citizen or from another class of citizens or from all citizens. But why are they able to take and take and take and take? Well, it tells you in the Bible why they get to take and take and take and take. You just go read Samuel 8. It's because you wanted to have a king. And you got a king. And you had a constitution, but your constitution did not have all five elements of a biblical constitution. And so now through contract, because it's the power of contract, you have agreed to systems of social welfare because you desired benefits at the expense of your neighbor. So through covetous practices, not through usurpation, but through covetous practices, you have become merchandise. And because the government you created is allowed to go into debt in your name as members of that government, because you are now members, you are now we the people now. You weren't we the people back in in uh, the 1700s. We the people were those names at the bottom of the document. But since then, because you were not a party to it, and this is, this is clearly stated over and over again in uh, constitutional decisions by the Supreme Court. They don't say that now because now you are a party to it and you become a party to it because you've asked the government to take away from your neighbor to provide you with free benefits. And because you were willing to take away from your neighbor, the government can now give the power to the government to take away from your neighbor, you have also given the government the power to take away from you. And now the government is taking and taking and taking and taking. Because as you judge, so shall ye be judged. When you judged it was okay to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, it was now okay for the government to force you to contribute to the welfare of your neighbor. When you said it was okay to borrow money that did not exist and become the collateral of that debt, you cursed your children with that debt because your maids have become the family of men. You you have made the state your father. He's your, he's your sugar daddy. He's going to give you all these benefits. And... You should be going to your natural father for these benefits, but he doesn't even know how to do it because you've been doing this for over a hundred years, making the state more and more your father because you've been going farther and farther away from the ways of God. And you've done that because your watchmen, whether they be Protestant ministers or Catholic ministers, have not been doing what they were supposed to be doing. They have not been practicing pure religion. They haven't been practicing religion at all. They've they've allowed religion to be redefined as what you think about God. 
when religion 200 years ago was defined as your pi- the performance of your pious duty to God and your fellow man. What's your duty to your fellow man? According to God, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. It is certainly not loving your neighbor to say to the government, you now have the power to take from my neighbor so that I can have benefits. But of course, that net you have laid for your neighbor, you're now caught in and how they can take from you. So taxation is not the result of theft. Taxation is the result of covetous practices. So you have become merchandise, you have become human resources, you have cursed your children, all of which Amos is warning the people about with his equating to their returning to the bondage of Egypt and abandoning the ways of God. And that's what they've done. So we go to this verse 10, For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Well, in the palaces of Israel, every man was king in his own castle. When he decided to have a king, he gave up some of his imperium, his right to choose, and gave it to this new king, president, or prime minister, or the legislature, or the gods of his society, those who decide what is good and evil, they will actually judge that it's okay to take your guns away or they may judge that it's okay to force a vaccination. They may not, but they suddenly supposedly have that power. And they have that power over resources of the state and you have become a resource of the state because instead of loving your neighbor as yourself... You coveted your neighbor's good and tried to turn your neighbor into a resource for you so that you could have free education and somebody could take care of your parents and you had to do no more ought for your parents. Yeah, I've been helping out an elderly, actually the most elderly woman in the, in the Summer Lake Basin, uh, whose own family is not taking care of her the way they should. If they were Christians, of course they're not Christians, but of course most of the people claiming to be Christians are not really Christians. They're, they're actually workers of iniquity. And, and Christ said that many would say they're Christians and do all kinds of things they think is Christian, whatever that means. I'm holding up my fingers and quoting that. But they're actually not doing what Christians did, certainly not doing what the early church did. So, they have stored up violence for themselves by their actions and inactions. So in verse 11 we see, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, An adversary there shall be even around about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled, your homes shall be spoiled, your businesses were spoiled during the shutdown, and and many of your homes were probably suffered because of that. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out from that dwell in Samaria. There's that word Samaria again. 
in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. So the corner of a bed in Samaria and a couch in Damascus. Again, this is poetry. And I'm not going to lay it all out for you. Actually, if you go back in and, and 1 and 2, I've added more little trails. It's like kind of the first time I went out hunting a bobcat that was killing our sheep. Jumping on the back of a 50-pound sheep and biting its skull and crushing its skull with one killing tooth. Uh, I had a, a trapper, old guy trapper, and he was showing me, uh, he was actually a government hunter uh, also as part of it, one of his careers. But uh, he was showing me how to track that bobcat. And we were going along and he would let me look at the ground and see if I could find it. And if I missed it, he would go back and then he would point out what I missed. So that I'm doing the same thing with you as we track through this uh, text of the of the ancient scripts. I let you kind of catch things on your own. If you don't get them, then I may come back and mention them in subsequent shows. And we'll go back to those verses and take a look at what you missed. And should have got if you were a good tracker. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit that's really going to show and reveal things to you. So, he shall bring down thy strength. Well, that's where we're at right now. People don't like what they see but they don't have the strength as a society to do anything about it. Somebody wants to set up a call with me and some advocates in South Africa who are fighting similar type bills that are showing up in South Africa. I won't go into all that now. But uh, as we see being prepared and being prepared even before COVID was even a word that anybody would know, there were already legislation coming before, like Oregon State Legislature, to force vaccinations. Where did that come from? Why was that coming out before the even anybody even knew that the COVID existed? Before they knew that there would be this chance of a forced vaccination. Fortunately, it was voted down, but barely. Now it's getting more and more <laughs> credibility because more and more people are waking up that. You don't want the state to have the power to hold you down and inject you. But the reality is they still don't know what to do about it because they don't have the strength. They know there's something wrong, but they don't have the strength. They don't have the strength because they have not really repented, nor have they been seeking the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. So they need to turn around and go the other way. So shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. So I'll leave that to you to figure out. So in verse 13, hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts. So he's telling you something. That in the day that I shall visit the transgression of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel. Another reference. What is the altars of Bethel? And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and shall 
to uh, and sh- and fall to the ground. So what are the ho- horns of the altar? That that's another one of those strange things. And I actually have started. Uh, I started a long time ago, but I added more to it just recently. What are these horns of the altar? Because it's a very interesting word, this word horns. But we'll get all the way through this before we go back to that. And that will be an ongoing thing. It's too much for people to grasp if you show them. But once these words become more and more familiar to you, when and these idioms of the language which Amos uses, he's pulling idioms out of other texts all the time. He may pull an idiom out and then he'll add an extra letter. It's part of the poetry, but it's also giving you some of the meaning. Because every single letter, again, has a meaning to it. So, it once you begin to get bits and pieces of this puzzle, you can reread these things and get more and more understanding. If you just go through and read the Bible every year, like some people do, it doesn't mean your understanding is increasing. But, just if I give you this information, that should not be your source. The source needs to be the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is only going to come if you actually repent and start doing what Christ said, which is to seek, to strive, and to persevere in your quest for the righteousness of God. You're not going to be righteous. But that quest, the journey, is the message. And I'll show you other quotes from time to time that show you how that is a story that is repeated over and over again in the biblical text. The journey is the destination. You, it, it is, that's why he's using words like seek, strive, and persevere. Because those are terms that refer to your journey. Your, your day-to-day walk with God, walk with the Holy Spirit, because it's in that walk that you learn to know the difference between the Holy Spirit of God and the unrighteous spirit of the world. The unrighteous spirit of the world is also often tied up in emotionalism and in vanity, etc. So anyway, we're down to verse 15, and I'll read it here really quick, and I will smite the winter house with the summer house and the house of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end saith the Lord full of symbolism winter house, summer house uh, ivory shall perish why is he being so cryptic because he wants you to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit as well. He's leaving those tracks. Just like the Bobcat left tracks. As he as he went off with the, his belly full of the lambs he killed. He, she had a, a litter up on uh, the couple point. Which now belongs to the church. But then it did not. But uh, anyway, he had a li- she had a litter up there and she was feeding him and she would take the meat up in her stomach and then regurgitate it so that uh, she could feed her young. That's the She wasn't a young lion, but she that's how she was operating. That's full of symbolism, but it's just the way nature is. The, 
the nature of God is written in nature. But you won't see it unless you see with the eyes given you by the Holy Spirit. So anyway, we'll take another little break and we'll be right back to Keys to the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys to the Kingdom. So we, we've got to Amos uh, chapter 3, but do we really understand it? And, and of course I left some tracks and some uh, ideas that you can pursue yourself. I mentioned Samaria, and if you go to preparingyou.com, uh, you will find the whole Bible, including this study on Amos. So you look up Amos and you go to chapter 3 and you will find the study. And eventually we'll have recordings there on those pages. We already have recordings of uh, chapter 1 and then we'll put up chapter 2 and then we'll eventually put up chapter 3. And so that you can go and share this with other people. But really what I'm supposed to be doing is making you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start practicing what Amos is telling the people they forgot to practice, which is this righteousness of God. And because they weren't practicing it, because they were slothful in that, they went under tribute. Because they were slothful in that, they weakened themselves as a society, and they began to return to the bondage of Egypt, and... This was going to make them a prey. And because they were making their own neighbors a prey. And so, I, like I said, there are links on that page. And one of the links was to Samaria. And, of course, Samaria is, a, you know, historically a city. And, uh, you know, and it uh, it's along the Mediterranean. And... Uh, it was talked about by Josephus, but it is also a metaphor. The Samaria is this metaphor that we saw in Micah 1. There's a study up in Micah 1 already, which you can also go to at preparingyou.com, in relationship to this transgression of Jacob. So what is the transgression of Jacob? Well, if you go to that page, there's a link to where the, what the transgression of Jacob is all about, which is the idolatry of Baal. This is what that transgression of Jacob is. Well, Baal is, is equated in the New Testament with the sin of the Nicolaitan. Because they both, Balaam and Nicolaitans, have to do with the conquered people. And why are the people conquered? Because their watchmen did not warn them, and they did not go the way of righteousness, but they went the way of the covetous practices of men like the Pharisees, who were making the word of God to none effect, with their system of social welfare called Corbin, that depended upon forced offerings rather than free will offerings. Anytime you see forced offerings in your society, you know you're going to end up destroying your society. Saul told this to, uh, excuse me, uh, Samuel told this to Saul when Saul forced the sacrifice of the people for good cause. But he was not to force the sacrifice of the people because that weakens the people. It takes away the choice and the people become a thing, a person, a member. 
and somebody else gets too much power and that power corrupts him. That's what happened to Saul. He became corrupted by this extra power that he got because he was forcing the sacrifices of the people. And it, it weakened him and degenerated him, but it also degenerated society. We've been doing that for a long time, so it, the quicker we change and go back the other way, the better off we will be. So in Amos 3, if you look over in the side panel, I just added more stuff during the break. But um, he's talking about brought you out of Egypt. Now you're going back to Egypt. Um, he, he, he says, he talks about taking up a snare, which takes us to Proverbs, uh, which uh, is talks about this one purse. I have an article on the one purse system of social welfare. Uh, which is what they were starting up with the golden calf. It was in the early stages and immediately, you know, Moses said no. But he had to call out a group, which was the church in the wilderness, the Levites, who were to have no personal estate, own all things common. They had land, but they owned it common. Uh, Levite, if he sold the land that he had a legal title to, any other Levite could come along and redeem that land back again because he only had a legal title to it. And God wanted you to have a lawful title to land, but the Levites had to become bond servants of God, and therefore, because they belonged to God as servants of God, they could not own land in their own name. Whatever land they supposedly held actually belonged to God. Now, when you disrupt this technical relationship that God is setting up through Moses and Christ set up through the apostles, because Christ required the same thing of the apostles, uh, early church fathers, what they call church fathers, I hate to use that term, but that's what they call them, like Jerome, was saying that the early church took on the role of the Levites. And you people say, well, that's ridiculous because they weren't doing any animal sacrifices. Well, early on in Israel, they weren't piling up stones and burning up sheep either. That the living stones early in Israel were living stones. They even talk about that. And they, they were, and if you understood the Hebrew, that a gathering of stones is a gathering of friends. So these altars were always lively stones, men in your society that you considered to be friends, charitable men, and they were there to receive your contributions, your burnt offerings, which weren't set on fire, but given up entirely, and redistributed amongst the people, which created invisible bonds, of loyalty and care for one another, bonds that would hold up when attacked by an enemy and so that they could be a strong society. If you take away that way of creating bonds and you create bonds by oaths and fealty, which James says, above all else, stop the taking of oaths, certainly don't bind yourself together with forced offerings and entitlement programs because this will weaken you as a society because it's a covetous practice and they're they're explaining all this and this is of course what Amos is talking about so there's links to articles on snare and consent not and deceitful meats and uh, which has to do with putting a knife to your throat if you sit and eat with a ruler 
because he served these deceitful means. Consent not. David and Paul both say, what should have been for your welfare will become a snare. And we have links to show you where all this is at in the Bible and how it's all completely repeated over and over again. And that you store up violence and robbery in your homes and in your palaces and in the ways that you are pursuing because you have these benefactors that exercise authority and offer you the wages of unrighteousness, which are the wages of exercising authority. Something Polybius told you about. If you become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others, you will institute the rule of violence, forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You're not a Christian if you're doing that. You're you're not even a good Roman or Corinthian if you're doing that, according to Polybius, <laughs> because you will usher in despots and tyrants if you do that. And that's, of course, what you do. And so, you know, I just added the line, so it is those who love the wages of unrighteousness more than forgiveness who rob themselves of their own soul. This is how the traveling merchants of the earth in Revelations get a full stock of slaves and souls of men. Is that you will not repent of the idea that it is not okay, that it is okay, you think it is okay, to force your neighbor to contribute so that you can get free education and somebody take care of your parents and somebody provide you with health care. And that has become so pervasive. I mean, I just got an email in the middle of the night. I also answered that as one of the other things that kept me up all night. <laughs> but uh, somebody sent me... Um, an email to, that went to Dave Dubbenmeyer, and it was from, I was trying to remember his rank, uh, somebody who is a colonel or whatever it is, I can't remember. Uh, let's see if I can find that. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, no, that's not it. Oh, here it is. Um, that was from South Africa, the other one I looked at. But anyway, uh, he wrote to Dave, mocking him, it sounded like. He says, I'm just so surprised that you and Jesus haven't cleared up the mess before it began. Since Jesus is also supposed to be a prophet, he should have seen it coming. Uh, it isn't a case of qualified credibility, is it? And he has all these question marks anyway. So, that's uh, that was... Uh, sent to Dave and then I by a Colonel Robert uh, Cunningham, and he put me on the list B seated. But I answered them back. Uh, and if you already saved, if you go to look up already saved at preparing you, you can find uh, this letter uh, down in the the bottom as to where you are at today. You know you are here kind of thing. And, and Jesus did predict this. The, the prophets did predict this. Apostles did predict this. Peter said that through covetous practices you'd make merchandise of yourselves and curse your children. And now we know it. They, they're cursed with trillions and trillions of dollars of debt. They're born in servitude where as much as half or more of their labor doesn't even belong to them but belongs to the government. And they, you end up working till July for the government or maybe longer for the government and all the wages that you produce go to them, not to you. 
and you think you're free, which is part of your strong delusion, <laughs> because you, you've all been socialists for 50 to 100 years. Public school is a socialist program. Federal Reserve is a socialist money system. Uh, these are all, you know, it's, it's the golden calf all over again. All this is going against God, going against Christ, yet you call yourselves Christians. What hypocrisy, what delusion. You're not Christians. You're fake Christians, just like the fake news. And of course, that's why you go to the news. Your preachers aren't telling you. Your preachers got you wearing masks and social distancing in the church for nothing more than the flu. Now, of course, if you're sick, you should social distance yourself, uh, especially if you're around old people. But the reality is that God will save you from, uh, from the flu. He's done it every flu season for Thousands of years. Some people die, but almost nobody died from this flu. They died from other complications, other morbidities, and many of which were brought on by terrible lifestyles that you know nothing about what is a good lifestyle because your ministers aren't telling you, your doctors aren't telling you, which is your other ministers. Your, your, the clergy of the state is not telling you. They're selling you cigarettes and alcohol and organ. <laughs> cigarettes. In Oregon, will as tobacco in Oregon at least will kill ten times the people in one year than it's killed by the COVID for more than a year now. And it wasn't even killed by COVID; it was killed supposedly with COVID, which they don't even know. You are listening to the wrong clergy, to the wrong ministers, and you. You should know that, and you would know that if you were really listening to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will comfort you with the truth, but those of you who do not want to receive the truth will find the truth a discomfort, and you will flee the Holy Spirit. It, it, you start to wake up, and you or realize you have fallen, and you run the other direction rather than go to the truth. The truth is... The, all these churches are not following the way of Christ. They, if you need help, they send you to the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. They tell you that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods more than to live by faith, hope, and charity. To live by force, fear, and fealty, they say is okay. They have, these preachers, these Puddin'-hand preachers have delivered you back into bondage. So, anyway, we're going to run out of time before I get to everything, although we got a little bit more time. So, anyway, you know, not only did Peter tell you, Samuel told you that if you want to have a ruler who can exercise authority, a commander-in-chief to fight your battles for you, which is what Saul was, and he starts forcing the contributions of the people or counting the people so that he can draft them like David started to do but repented. But Lincoln started to do but did not repent. FDR did for World War II. And uh, and maybe for a good cause. Like I said, Saul was taking forcing that collection for a good cause. But you're not supposed to force it. You're supposed to get the people to come together and defend one another in righteousness. And if you do that, God will be on your side. 
and he will destroy the entire army of the Pharaoh, and you've got to do nothing but watch. Because you've already done something, which is seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And and you do that by forgiving those who have been taking your contributions by force, and you say, take it. I don't want it. I don't want the benefit. I'm going to let go. I'm going to gather together as Christ commanded in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. I'm going to start learning what it means to care about my neighbor as much as I care about myself. I'm going to start learning this the nature of the sacrifice of Christ who laid down his whole life. I'm just going to have to lay down a portion of my life daily so that I can pick up my life more abundantly. Some of you may be asked to lay down more than just a portion. But if you continue in the ways that Polybius outlined, Peter outlined, Paul outlined, these covetous practices uh, that are in violation of the commandments of God, the guideposts of God, the way of God, then you are going to continue on the road to destruction. And you need to repent of that and turn around and go the other way. Coach Dave Dobbenmeyer, which I like a lot of things he sees, I've written him many times. He hasn't responded. Nobody's responded to the email I sent him and Colonel Robert F. Cunningham, who I don't even know who that is. But evidently, he, he he's mocking Jesus <laughs> or just mocking Dave. And so I kind of mocked them both. But it's not my intent to mock them. I I hope the best for them. But the best will only come if they repent and seek the ways of righteousness, the ways of God that are righteous and not this false religion, this public religion, the clergy of the state. That's what the public religion is all about. It's the state taking care of the needy of your society. It's not pure religion. Pure religion is to take care of the needy of your society unspotted by the state. The constitutional order and systems of government. That's what it says in the text. If you don't believe me, go read our article on pure religion at Preparing You. Now, uh, also, the if we start getting families that are sticking together and starting to follow the ways of Christ for a change, then we should also gather several times a year so that these families get to know one another. And so those maids can find other sons and daughters who are seeking the righteous, the other sticks of society that should be seeking the righteousness of God. And they can marry and start the next generation. That's why they had these festivals. Because it was a way to bind society together in another way without oaths of fealty. It was through the family. And it strengthened the family because it brought, you know, if everybody just marries people in their own town, pretty soon you're going to family reunions to look for girls. And that would be a bad thing. And we could do a whole program on societies that actually do that and how it degenerates society. Everything is written in nature. And these these... Feasts and festivals, there was a reason for them, a practical reason for them, and not just superstition. 
and people who want to have it just on certain days and wear certain clothes, they're probably missing it. I know, I don't know how many people I know that, uh, celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, but has no international daily ministration, no network of tens, hundreds, and thousands, no daily ministration to take care of the needy of their society, but that they think they're keeping the festivals. The festivals were to strengthen those systems of social welfare through charity, through what the Old Testament calls free will offerings. So we have a festival right now. We hope to have more and more. We hope to build uh, grounds where we can have extremely large groups and gatherings. But all that takes time. It takes labor. It takes your support. So come to the Burning Bush Festival, which will be the first weekend in September. Out here in Summer Lake, go to the website preparing you, look up Bernie Bush. We have a burningbushfestival.org, uh, which will give you more and more particulars about it. But if you join the network, we don't want you to get all the information on the internet. We want you to get the information from real living internet, a living network of souls that are sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and following the following the commandments of Christ for a change because your ministers are not getting you to do that. And there's a lot more to learn about how such systems operate and work. They need to learn this in South Africa. They need to learn this throughout America. They need to learn it in South America. They need to learn it in Scandinavia and Europe and Africa because we have been going down the wrong road for a long time and it's going to take a miracle to save society. There are elements in the world now that wanted to see the decimation of the human race and they're working for that goal. And I'm actually quoting the decimation of the human race. Your only defense is Christ and the Holy Spirit, the comforter of Christ. So you need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to get serious. Stop putting off. Christ warned about those procrastinators who said, Oh no, I can't come right now. i got to go do my thing over here. He warned about those. The foolish virgins who ran out of oil when they needed it and so had to go off and get oil and then they came back and they wanted in and they knocked, you know, at the door and Jesus said, no, you can't come in. Can't come in. I'm not opening up for you. It's too late. You missed it. Boy, Jesus is mean. But he's telling you that parable because you should not wait. You should learn what it means to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and to start caring about others and casting your bread upon the waters and taking care of one another. Because as you do that, your eyes will be opened. You will be awakened to more and more of those messages hidden in the poets like Amos and the prophets of God. In those messages, because the same spirit that wrote upon their hearts and minds will now have a place to write upon your heart and mind. Because you're beginning to set down 
the lies that they have got you to believe like you're already saved. You saved yourself by what you thought, by your own thinking, by your own worshiping the idolatry of your own mind. You create Christ and God in your mind. You worship that creation. And you say, I believe in that creation in my mind. That that creation in your mind is the result of the opinion of theologians and other people that have put it in your mind by preaching a false or half a gospel. They'll tell you many truths, but if they don't tell you the whole truth, you're stuck believing a lie. And then you believe in that lie and believe that you're already saved. I don't know if you're already saved. I doubt it. I know many will think they're already saved, But they're actually workers of iniquity. And you can be a worker of iniquity because you're loving the benefits of unrighteousness, the rewards of unrighteousness, the wages of unrighteousness. Or you can be a worker of iniquity simply because you're slothful in the ways of God. If you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, I would mark a check mark by slothful. (laughs) So so join us at preparingyou.com or His Holy Church. Org, join the network. Uh, learn more about the Burning Bush Festival. Learn more about the network of Christ. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www dot his holy church dot net